Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 57 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Jameson Dance. Hello, friends. Merrick Christensen. Hi. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest. That's uh, Zach Kesson. Hey, everybody. Did I say your name right, Zach? Yep, you got it right. All right. This week we're going to be talking about functional programming in JavaScript. You want to give us a little bit of uh, background on you so that you can kind of explain... I don't know who you are and, and your expertise oh, okay. here. So yeah, um, I'm Zach Kesson. I'm a software, been a software developer for close to 20 years on the web, since close to 20 years now. Wrote my first web app in PHP version, or not PHP, in Perl version 4 with MSQL because MySQL didn't exist yet. Um, that was like 1994. And let's see, I've been doing web applications ever since. Worked in... Boston area in London, and been in Israel for about 10 years now. Uh, I'm also the author of Programming HTML5 Applications and Building Web Applications with Erlang, both published by O'Reilly. And my interests include functional programming, code generation, and Erlang, concurrency in Erlang. Um, so that's a, but that's a different show. So that's sort of my background. And I work at a small television startup called Product Structure, that we build, uh, drop in a components and workflows that are, will be self-optimizing, uh, on your website. So that's what we're doing. We'll be launching that soon. So. Cool. Very and you cool. just, you just launched your own podcast, didn't you? Yeah. I just launched my own podcast, uh, called Mostly Erlang. It's going to cover Erlang and occasionally other functional languages like Haskell and OCaml. Uh, we had our first, we recorded our first episode, uh, last week. And let's, and uh, the first episode is called Building Skynet. And the second, second episode will be on the web machine framework, which is an HTTP framework, backend framework that lets you do some semantically correct web machine. Uh, and that it's sort of similar in format to this podcast in Ruby the Rogues. Um, so we sort of stole, borrowed your uh, format, Chuck. <laughs> That's fine. Um, we did, so- I should point that out. <laughs> yeah, you did ask. Well, I actually stole the format from the twit.tv shows, so... Okay. Yeah. Very cool. But so, yeah. Zach, I know a huge portion of our users don't actually know what functional programming is. Could you kind of give a high-level overview of that to okay. start us off? Okay, so functional programming is a paradigm of programming for which sort of the sort of famously done in languages like Haskell and Lisp and Scheme and Erlang in which basically you use composition of functions as your primary mechanism for building up programs. It works well in JavaScript. When Brendan Eich was designing JavaScript, he stole the function concepts of how functions work basically from Scheme, which is one of the Lisp languages. So you can do a lot of things with functions. It's the thing in the language that Douglas Crockford has said that, I think he's right, that they got really right, is they got functions right. So basically the way I tend to do functional programming in JavaScript, and I was doing some of it today, is basically I write a lot of little one-line functions. Uh, I like one-line functions. They're easy to test, easy to work with. And then you just sort of string them together. 
Uh, I actually tend to use CoffeeScript, not JavaScript, directly when I can. Is there attributes of CoffeeScript that make functional programming simpler, or do you just prefer the taste? Uh, a little bit of both. I prefer the taste. I find the arrow oh, and the fat arrow operators and the and really nice, as will the the decomp the uh, destructuring arguments. Okay. Uh, really nice, and just the ability to sort of have that sort of more concise syntax. Uh, also, use underscore JS a lot for this to sort of wrap things up and just uh, do that. And you end up with I end up with a lot of times using the chain and the chain operator in underscore, you end up with sort of like of uh, an algebra of functions. I, I like to think of it as where you start with a list and, you know, you just perform a bunch of transformations on it and you end up with an output list that sort of more or less does is what you want. And you sort of just have a bunch of independent steps to get there. Sure. Um, so, sure. So, so underscore has chain. Uh, yeah. It seems like it also has things like compose, uh, after yeah, wrap. It, do you recommend all those kinds of things for the functional programming approach? Or I do. I, I like the chain approach where you can just, you know, if you have a list of something, either on the front end or the back end, it doesn't matter. You know, you have a list, you might want to filter out some elements. Uh, you might want to transform some of the other some of the elements i was doing something yesterday this is actually on the servers not in javascript but what i was querying some data from a data source and i needed to drop some records that didn't reach some rules and then transform it in six different ways so i end up with like six or eight little functions each does one thing and then just end up with a chaining operation that just sort of percolate puts them all that just sort of all run through yeah and then I, build, build it up one step at a time and it's really easy to get it right yeah, I particularly like about the chain operator is it usually reads very top-down, whereas one of the things that's harder to grok for functional programming for me is that it's kind of inside-out. Yeah, that's one thing that drives me nuts. Sometimes drives me nuts, too, especially when you start getting into, like, six and eight levels deep. Of, yeah. You know, F of, you know, function one, a function two, a function three, a function four. What you really want to be able to do is decompose that into some sort of, you know, abstract-out, the flow control in some way. And of course, what you're really getting to there in chain or with like a, a promise like Q is you're basically working with a monad. Could I was actually working on a book on monads, but it kind of fell apart. Cause so monad is always kind of one of those um, magic words to me. My understanding of monad is it's a function that takes a single argument, but people talk about it like it's a lot more than that. Yeah. It's a monad. No, that's not a, fu a function. So that's not really what a monad is. Um, a monad to is me. that's guaranteed to break your brain. <laughs> I thought monads okay. were just invented so people that wrote Haskell could sound smarter than you. <laughs> I didn't know they yeah. actually did anything. I thought they were just like a thing you could drop in conversation. <laughs> yes, monads are <laughs> monads are you know one of the essential aspects of functional programming. They they allow us to feel so, feel superior to everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> And by the way, if you look, there is a running debate online over whether jQuery is a monad. And, and, and really, only you're talking about the <laughs> DOM manipulation part of jQuery, not the plugins and the Ajax and all the other stuff. But, and, and I suppose you could query, do Google queries and say jQuery is a monad and jQuery is not a monad and see which had more hits. So it might be an interesting experiment to try if you want to try that. But basically, a monad, the best way I can think of to describe a monad is it's a um, programmable control flow is really functionally what it comes down to. 
So the chain value operator in underscore is a monad, as is the queue library, more yeah, forms a monad. Basically, a monad has to have three operations. You have to have a thing to wrap a value in the monad, it's going to unwrap it, and then something sort of process it through. And if that's a lousy explanation, I'm sorry, but it's sort of the best I can do. So um, the, I don't know the theoretical explanation of it, but I've often seen it referred to as a way to wrap I.O. or, or things that need to touch the outside world and, and do it well, in a functional in way. In Haskell's case, and I, I do not know Haskell beyond the, you know, much beyond the hello world. I mean, I've read a little bit about it, but I cannot claim that I know it. When you're not in a monad, you, you can only write pure code that can't touch any of the outside world, either reading or writing. So you have to have to invent all this monadic stuff to, you know, be useful. That being said, it's still useful. So like, so one of the most basic monad, the most basic monad is the identity monad, which doesn't really do anything useful, or it's not particularly to my. Um, but sort of beyond that, you can go to what's called the maybe monad. I just like having a keyword called maybe. That's kind of cool. And a maybe monad is basically, it takes a function that can return basically an op, it's basically an op, think of it as an algebraic optional value. So this gets you around the whole null pointer exception. So whenever you have an operation that can return either a value or no value. So like if you're want to find out if a certain element is in the list, is in a list of, of, of elements, right? It's either there and you return the element, or it's not, and you return a, a null value, which in JavaScript would probably be undefined. Sure. Excuse me. Um, so it's sort of like a functional if-else. Yeah. And nice thing is you can chain it, so you can have a chain of 10 operations, any one of which can return either null, or or you can do, sort of go out to a third level and have an error version, an error, you have, you know, value, nothing or error and it'll just return basically it'll just sort of iterate down the list until it gets either nothing or an error in that case it'll just short circuit the rest of the list so that you end up with this wonderful thing that you don't have to have the whole all right if i get an, if i get the previous stage returns nothing handle it if it returns this you know you you have to sort okay of yeah that sounds that sounds a lot like promise chains so i can yeah it's exactly you kind of see the connection between them and, you know, what you can do if you're better at symbolic algebra than I am, you can come up with a general mathematical description of all this stuff, which the Haskell guys do. I mean, if you imagine, you know, JavaScript does not have, like, a static type system like Haskell does, but you can sort of imagine a type system into it, sort of think about a type. And, you know, you can imagine that basically what a monad does is it sort of modifies the type. Where in the maybe monad, you either have, you know, a value or nothing. So that you end up with something that looks like that. And then basically you have a control flow that just knows what to do with the right thing. And then you can abstract out your control from your operations. So jQuery has a similar API. Whether or not it's actually a monad, you can argue about. And I'm not really sure. Up on that. Oh, I, I, I oh really, go ahead, Chuck. I really want to back up here for a minute and just just talk about we, we hear about these purely functional languages like uh, lisp and scheme and haskell haskell and so so uh what what's the difference between these languages and something like javascript which to my understanding isn't purely functional right well neither is lisp actually so if you look at haskell and if you haven't looked at haskell you should it's got some really cool stuff in it even if it does break my brain 
Haskell has some features that JavaScript doesn't. So first of all, in Haskell, as in Erlang, all variables are single assignments. So nothing can, things don't, values don't change. Second of all, in Haskell, a pure function can have no side effects. Mm -hmm. So you have a very strong static guarantee that for any function, if you give it the same input parameters, you'll get the same output. Um, so, so you can write purely functional code in JavaScript. It's just not enforced by the language or the environment right. at all. The language is, does, as you say, does not enforce it. You could probably write some tools that would do that. But the language so, itself. And in Haskell's case, they could do cool things like, because everything is purely, they can purely functional, they can evaluate a lot of stuff lazily, where the compiler can say, oh, okay, you've just asked for an infinite list, but I only need the first three elements, so I'm just not going to compute those. You can, again, do that in JavaScript. You just have to write some code. So you say that, that two of the big things are single assignments, which is kind of like immutability, right? Like, once yeah, it's, it's set, it's set. Yeah. Um, and then the other thing is that it's that it's no side effects. And it seems like no side effects occur because of the immutability. Like, you couldn't have side effects, right? Well, no, because Erlang is immutable, but you still have side effects. Could you, you explain that? Okay, so in Erlang... Any value once you've assigned it is fixed. You know, you can't say, you know, if you tried to say x equals x plus 1, the compiler would go, no, it doesn't, and, you know, throw its hands at you. Yeah, but can you do x equals 1 and then later on do x equals 2? No, not in the same function. But you could have a side effect. You could, I don't know, print some output or send a message to another process or uh, send output back to the, to the, or, you know, interact with other things in the world. Okay. So in JavaScript, you, 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 know, you don't have the immutability, but you can still have the functional composition where you can use either chain or something or promises to uh, have a very ordered code base. So that's really where it shines in JavaScript is when you start, especially when you're using backbone and underscore, when you start to just say, okay, I've got a collection of data, of, of data records here. And I want some result from it, and I'm just going to chain a bunch of processes until I get the values, the information that I want out of it, which could be, you know, filter, then do a couple maps, then another filter, then a couple more maps, then a reduce, and you have the final value. You know. So I want to ask you about something that's been my experience in doing and trying to do functional programming in JavaScript. And I'm by no means an expert, so I'm sure I was doing a lot of things wrong, but just inside some little system that's pretty self-contained once I got all the data and I tried to do everything in a functional style and I ended up having really complicated data structures because sometimes I needed to return multiple results so I'd have to like return a big giant array and then pass that into the next thing and it needed a hash of some stuff from the environment and I don't know I, I just ended up so since I didn't have objects where I could store state and and compute things based on that state I had to pass what? everything in and return everything out. So it was like passing the world into my functions and then returning this modified world out of it. And it, yeah. I felt like I was doing it wrong because it seemed pretty complex. I mean, I could see the benefits for testability where you have everything you need in the arguments and stuff, but it, it didn't seem to make the code um, any better. Yeah, I, I, I've had that too. And there's sort of a couple ways you can sort of deal with that. First of all, you can sort of just capture intermediate results and branch them out and re-merge them later. That's one approach. You just warped um, my brain. Could you explain that? What what you just said? 
Oh, sure. So, say for example, in jQuery, you could capture some DOM elements, do a couple operations on them, assign that result to a variable, do something else, and then do a couple more operations. Um, okay. Or like, you could, like a variable outside the scope, you mean? Yeah. You but know, then don't say, you don't you throw away the testability at that point? You know, well, it's not a few test function. Like it seems like you kind of encapsulate anything yeah, that is purely functional can can do whatever it wants in the middle as long as it's deterministic with its inputs and outputs, right? But yeah. if your function is talking to some variable that you know it, it depends on some scope existing. Oh no! I I mean I I'm not so much test depending on some variable so much as just your chain simply returns returns a value at the end, and then sure. you use that value to simply restart another chain later. So sure. kind of split instead of chaining everything together in a giant list of ten functions, and some maybe to do that you need to have a more complicated data structure. You might split yeah. out the the things that make the data structure complex into two chains and then like combine them at the end or something like that. Yeah, that you right? do that with, with Q, there's some nice things. If you have like three or four promise chains going, there's an operation in, Q, in the Q library, and I forget what it is, that lets you say, okay, when all of these complete, go on. So if you have, you know, you're waiting for four things to happen, you can just sort of say, okay, when all of, you know, promise one, promise two, promise three, and promise four are done, you know, create a joint promise, basically. And you can do that in Q. I, I forgot the exact syntax, but you can do it. Honestly, I've been staying out of the, out of JavaScript the last few weeks as much as I could. The 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 front end of our of our company is being done by a different developer, and I'm mostly handling the API side. Sure. So, so we we kind of have touched on them a little bit, but I don't know if we've actually enumerated the the reasons why you would want to do functional programming, um, especially in a language where you can do uh, object oriented or procedural or whatever kind of programming you want, like JavaScript. So what do you, do you want to just enumerate some of the benefits, like make the case for doing it? Okay, so, so, so first of all, you end up doing a fair bit of it anyway, because in JavaScript you end up throwing around functions for callbacks and stuff. So, you know, especially using something like the Q library, uh, the promise library that you guys talked about a few episodes, uh, some episodes back, by the way. Finally, link to it in a minute. You can end up avoiding the call, the sort of callback ladder of doom where you end up with six callback levels deep, which I know I've got. I assume everybody else here has done. Uh, oh, yeah. That's, you kind of want to avoid that. And then also, you know, in, say, when you're trying to process, you know, using a, a list, process a list, you also can get that. And the other thing is it's just a very powerful metaphor, a powerful mechanism, especially when you start going into, we haven't talked about um, higher-order functions, where you have things like map, or you can construct your own, where you can sort of abstract out some detail where you just say, okay, we haven't touched, you know, touched much more. Where you can create a function where the part of the operation of the function is another function where you, where you can pass in sort of abstractions. So this, so map and reduce and those functions are very good examples where you say, okay, I want to do something to every element of this list. Or I want to do something to every record in, in, in this data set where you just say, okay, I know how to handle one. I know I handle one element. So now I just 
need to scale that up to handling n elements. It's kind of cool when you can sort of write, spend a whole day writing code and never use either an if or a loop in any way. Uh, I've done that a couple times, sometimes without <laughs> intending to, but it's sort of the, ooh, I haven't used a loop in three days. So, but the ability to use higher order functions is something that's very convenient. And even in non-functional JavaScript, for example, I've been playing with uh, ext.js a lot, a bit, not a lot, but a little bit recently. And, you know, in the uh, XJS store, the filter, you basically, there's a filter by, you just, you pass it a function and you say, you know, apply this to every element in every record in the store and filter out all those for which it returns false, which is hard, which is again very convenient when you're trying to just say, okay, I want to show a subset of my data. You know, you don't just come up with a general, general rule for filtering. You just say, I'm just going to pass you a function and it's going to figure out what, what to show and what to hide. And that function can change, you know, change as you post things in your interface or things like that. So that's what, and of course you don't have to, in jobs you probably shouldn't do functional programming exclusively. I mean, you can if you want to, I guess, but it's, you know, it's nice about languages like JavaScript is since it is a multi-paradigm language, you know, you can use functional programming where it makes sense and then go use object-directed programming in many of the same places. Right, even... Even chain, like the underscore chain example we've been using, that's not purely functional, right? Because you're kind of creating this object that stores the well, state internally and calling methods well, on it. Right. I mean, you're creating, you know, it, 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 it's, you know, the thing is, every, every iteration through the chain, you're actually returning a new object. You're returning a new wrapped object. So, so you're you know, not modifying it, the original values right, that were put into it. it. The initial values. You're simply creating a new, a new, a new version of it with jQuery. Interesting. Okay, so so these aren't all methods on chain that eventually return chain. It actually is passing down this underscore yeah. wrapped. Oh, that's kind of cool. Okay. Yeah, kind kind of like the the map reduce example again. I mean, you you map 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 map, but you have the original values off in some variable somewhere else, and it's returning. The, a new set of values every time you call map, and yeah. then um, at the same time, and then when you call reduce or filter or anything like that, again, you, you're getting a different set of values, and it may be a reduced set of values, it may be a um, a specific uh, subset of the values you had before, or it may be some um, some view on the values that you had in the original. Um, right, I mean, set, but initi- but it's not changing the initial values, so you still have those off somewhere else that uh, you know that you can always call back to. Right. Sure. So ever, um, jQuery is the same. Where when you first launch, you know, when you capture something with the dollar operator in jQuery, and then you know you do you know dollar selector dot show dot something out, you know dot fade out whatever. You know, each of those times it's returning, you're actually getting a new jQuery object with the, that's a transmutation of the prior one. So you can actually um, catch, capture that in, in a useful way. So basically, in the chain, you are actually transmuting. The, you're actually not changing the initial values. You're, you're simply creating a new set. So, so essentially, oh, when you, oh, sorry. So once you, when you're doing underscore dot chain, it's kind of the same thing as just, Wrapping something in the underscore object and then going from there, right? Exactly. 
Yeah. Interesting. So, I so mean, chain is just kind of long hands for that that sort of wrapping approach. Yeah, I mean, the, the great advantage of it is, is if you're going to do seven, you know, seven operations or you know, five operations or whatever, you could do, you know, value one equals map, you know, underscore map function initial value, and then sort of just assign it to a new intermediate value every time. But this just means you just it just sort of saves you notation. Got it. So one thing I noticed. In, in my experiment with doing stuff in a purely functional style is I was doing a lot of copying. Um, is that something that languages that are more designed as, for functional programming will take care of for you? Where, where maybe they'll, they'll... Yeah, I was copying a ton of data around so that I wasn't modifying stuff and then like not returning anything but just modifying the thing that gets passed in. Is, is that something that compilers in... Or, or languages um, themselves will take care of for you to do that in a more efficient yeah. way. I mean, usually, and you also just only learn to pass in less stuff. Um, yeah, the habit. And the other thing that JavaScript doesn't have, unfortunately, that would be really nice for functional programming style, is um, any sort of tail call optimization. Which can you explain what that is? Okay, so if you have a function that ends by calling another function, but the last thing is it just a call to a second function. Uh, what you can, what a lot of languages like Lisp or Haskell or Erlang will do is instead of adding a new stack frame, they simply replace the prior stack frame with a new function. So in Erlang, for example, in Haskell, it's the same. There's no loop up. There's no like for loop because you can't mutate variables. So you loop by being, doing recursion. Um, now you can, by using tail call, a tail call optimization, you can recurse effectively the stack and the stack doesn't grow. Sure. And so I'm, I'm yeah. just trying to wrap my head around this. So, um, when you recurse, I, I, oh, okay. So, so let me back up. So, um, the way I understand, um, Lisp and some of these other languages work, you have the, the cutter and the car. Yeah, and, Lisp is famous for giving things functional names. Which, so so car, it's the first element and then everything else. Right. So if you have a Lisp, Lisp list, you have two operations. Car, which is the first element of the list, and cutter, CDR, which is basically the tail of the list. You know, everything but the first element. And these actually, those names relate to the architecture of an so, IBM computer that was current in like 1958. Um, yeah, the names are all pretty, mm -hmm. pretty um, funny. But, but so anyway, uh, so when you're talking about recursion, what you're saying is is you you have an operation that operates on the car and then calls itself on the cutter because the right. car of the cutter is the next element. Exactly, and of course you could do this in JavaScript quite nicely. I mean, it doesn't have to be. I mean, you could also say use recursion to do a binary ser a searching through a binary tree or. Lots of other things. One place I've ended up using this sort of operation, although it's not strictly speaking recursive in terms of the code, it is logically in JavaScript, is if you have a list of things you need to send to the server, if you have 20 elements you need to send to the server, and for some reason you don't want to put them all into one Ajax call, because I don't know, it would blow up your server or something, basically you can use that type of operation where basically you send the first, you have a lit, you take it, you treat it as an array, you send the first one, 
element to the server when it return when the Ajax call returns. You then just take the list, the remaining list, which is you know all of the list minus the first element, and apply it again, and just keep repeating until you run out of elements. I've done that in JavaScript once or twice for reasons that I don't remember. Normally, obviously, you'd just rather send the whole thing in one go if you could. Right. But it doesn't have to be that. Um, I mean, you, you can do recursion for sort of any number of things. You know, if you want to fun- compute the Mandelbrot set, you can, the, alg- the algorithm is nicely recursive. In Haskell or Erlang, you can do a quick sort in one line of code through recursion. It's not necessarily the most efficient implementation of quick sort, mind you, but it's one line of it's like two lines of code. It's really impressive. Mm-hmm. So, um, so can you explain now in in terms of the uh, you know the first element and everything else how how the tail call um, optimization okay, works? So, so normally, when you when you you're in a function, you call another function, you add a frame onto your stack. Mm-hmm. So. And since you know your computer is finite, your memory is finite. At some point, you run out of stack of, of space on your stack. In JavaScript, if you you know recurse in, infinitely, at some point your stack explodes, and your program your code crashes. Right. Now, in languages that use recursion very heavily, of which Lisp, most functional languages that don't run on the JVM fall into this category. What they do is basically. In cases where they can, in some cases you can't, basically when you make that call to that next function in line, you they, instead of pushing another frame onto your stack, you simply pop the current frame off and put the new frame in as a replacement. Um, so you can recurse infinitely in the stack with a constant stack. That makes sense. Now, this, this doesn't work if you need to operate on the return value of the call function. So if you say, you know, so if you're, if you're, this would be a stupid implementation, but if you're using recursion to add a list of numbers, you, and you said, okay, you know, the, the, the sum will be one plus the sum of the rest of the list, then you can't do that because you've got to return the rest of the list then add one to it, so it, you still need that stack frame. That's probably not the best way to add a list of numbers, but it was just sort of a simple example. So that's how you sort of take it, do that. I think I read that they're talking about adding tail call optimization into uh, whatever the next version of JavaScript will be, but I have no idea what when they're going to do that or if they're going to do that or what the time so they, is. We had the opportunity to talk to Dave Herman about this exact thing uh, okay. a few episodes ago, and he mentioned they absolutely are, and he explained it okay. as well. So if anyone oh. didn't grok... Your explanation. We also have David Herman's explanation. Um, well, which episode? I hope, I hope I caught that one. I'll just go check. Um, I, I have to say that uh, this is one of those things too that you have to kind of hit your head against a couple of times before you really get, you know, really get it. So uh, yeah, yeah. I highly recommend if you're trying to understand, um, you know, the the approach and tail call and all this stuff. That yeah, you listen to both episodes, listen to both explanations. Because you know they they explain it a little bit differently, and uh, hopefully then you can get your head around the concept that we're addressing here. It might also be useful if you really want to get your head around the concept to step away from JavaScript a little bit and go play with Haskell or Lisp or or, or Erlang or one of the languages that really emphasizes this stuff. Uh, probably Haskell or Lisp, and 
you know, play with it for a while and really get your head around it in a different language where you can sort of, you don't have to try to, you know, where you, you sort of have a blank slate. Because the thing is, if you can figure out how to do something cool in Lisp or in Scheme, you probably can take that solution back to JavaScript with you in a way that, you know, if you just stay in JavaScript, you might, you might not. So it's one of those reasons why learning a new lang programming language every so often is just a useful skill. It's a useful thing because, you know, if you learn a new language, you'll discover it does something really awesome. If you haven't read the book Seven Languages in Seven Weeks from the Pragmatic Programmers, you should do. If one of those languages doesn't make you, one of the seven doesn't make you sit up and go, oh my God, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen, you're in the wrong line of work. <laughs> I, I don't know which of the seven it'll be. For me, it was Prologue, which I've never actually used. They present a Sudoku puzzle solver, and it's like 20 lines of code. And it's like, you're looking at it going, where's the program? That can't oh, yeah. <laughs> That's God. awesome. I mean, it's like, oh my God, this is the cool. And, you know, maybe for somebody else, it'll be, you know, Scala or Erlang or whatever. I, you know, just, I, you know. But I, I fundamentally feel that learning seven programming languages, one of them doesn't make you sit up and go, oh, that's just cool. You shouldn't be a programmer, you know. <laughs> Yep. I don't care which of the seven it is. It just better be one of them, at least. Yeah. Are there any, I know there's some heavy, like, functional programming libraries, like libraries that focus explicitly on this kind of stuff. Like, uh, there's Valentine. Jameson, what was the name of that library that JavaScript Alonge is working on, that book? Do you remember? Oh, no, but I have Google. <laughs> well... I'm wondering if you know of any like functional uh, libraries in specific that I mean, aside from underscore, that you recommend for learning this kind of stuff. Stuff that maybe has things like maybe. Uh, I actually have an implementation of the maybe monad somewhere. On I think it's in a gist. Let's see if I can find it. So here's an implementation of the maybe monad in CoffeeScript. Not Very cool. Test it. Yeah, uh, we'll post that to the show notes. Yep. The Q the Q promise library is one I like a lot because it solves a problem that if you're doing any sort of JavaScript development front end or back end you have, which is the callback hell. It's so interesting that you reference Q because I, you know, I've, I've been using Q for a long time and I've loved it, but I, I never considered it a functional programming um, approach. Yeah. Well, the truth is I found out about it through, through this shit, through you, you guys. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, I found out about it. I was like, hold on. I started reading about it. I started reading it. It's like, hold on. I think that's a monad. And I sat down and worked out the math. And I'm like, yep, it is. So um, Q seems cool because it seems like a way that you can make things that aren't functional into functional, uh, a right. functional style. Because you take I things just, that have callbacks and asynchronicity and, and you can turn them into things that just take an input and return an output. Absolutely. Yeah. Q is just wonderful. You know, it's the idea that you can take the sequencing aspect and separate it out from the functional aspect, uh, you know, small f functional, or just sort of the, you know, you know, take the sequencing and separate it from this is the problem I am trying to solve aspect. You know, okay, this is going to happen, and then this has to happen when it's done. Okay, I, I, you know, I don't need to know the mechanics of how that works. I just want it to work. You know, and I'm, I'm a big. Uh, Big fan of the whole higher abstraction. 
you know, I spent a lot of time in airline where error handling is inherently handled somewhere else. You know, the, the motto of the airline work community is don't write defensive code ever. Well, almost ever. So, so I have one more question and then we're going to get into the picks. And that is what, what do you find that you miss the most when you're working in something like JavaScript where it's not totally functional and what do you find that you miss when you're working somewhere where it is totally functional? So JavaScript. the thing that I miss the most when I'm in JavaScript versus Erlang isn't necessarily a purely functional, it's a syntax thing, but it's pattern matching. In Erlang, you can say, okay, I have four clauses in a function, and depending on what the input is, it'll run the right one, and it's just very concise. And also the concurrency model uh, in Erlang is just really nice. In terms of the other way around, you know, sort of the, what I really like about JavaScript is, and CoffeeScript for that matter, is it just has wonderful syntactic sugar. You can make the language do almost anything. I mean, it may come around and bite you later, but it's a wonderful syntactic sugar where you can say, oh yeah, I can just make it do that. You know, it's, we've taken this language, which is in some ways syntactically not so wonderful, and then we've just added things like Q and underscore and jQuery and just, we, we've taken like, you know, if you actually tried to do raw JavaScript interfacing with just the DOM, if, if you told me I had to do that, I think I'd, you know, you know go shoot myself or something because, <laughs> like, really, I don't want to do that. Uh, I've done that. It's not fun. It's really not. But you start adding Q and jQuery, and underscore, and all these other things. And suddenly it's like, oh, okay, yeah, this is actually really nice. So that synta- level of syntactic sugar, where you can just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to take a couple functions from over here and stick them over there. Yeah. That's really awesome. All so. right, cool. Well, we're, we're right about at our time limit, so uh, I okay. hate to cut you off, but I'm going to. Always do a part two some other day if we want. Yeah, that's true. All right. Well, let, let's go ahead and do the picks. Um, Jameson, why don't you start us off with the picks? All right. I'm going to go with two. One of them is this video by someone called V Hart. I have never heard of her before, but uh, Isaac's posted this on Twitter a couple weeks ago. And she's talking about the normalcy of Pi. Um, and it's she, she has a, a bunch of videos like this where they're about deep mathematical things, but they're explained in a really clever and easy to follow away. It's one of those YouTube things where they, they, she, she makes like a bunch of drawings and records herself talking over, over the drawing that kind of explains what she's talking about. So it's really well done. Um, and then my next one is continuing my series of goofy tumblers. It's sports balls replaced with cats.tumblr.com. And it, it's what it sounds like. They take pictures of athletes like slam dunking a ball and then they Photoshop a cat in place of the ball. So it looks like they're slam dunking a cat. It's pretty great. Very mentally stimulating. <laughs> Those are my picks. Awesome. Merrick, what are your picks? So my picks, since we're talking about functional programming with JavaScript, I'm going to pick this book, JavaScript Alange. Uh, I think it's Alange. It might be Alange. I don't know. But uh, it's a book on functional programming, and it also has kind of a library. It's, it talks a lot about the things we discussed today. And then secondly, I've been using this library called Bonsai JS. And it is awesome. It's kind of like flat, the good abstractions of Flash in the browser. Okay. It's awesome for really rich uh, animation kind of projects. Awesome. Check that out. Cool. Sweet. Thanks. 
All right, my picks this week. Uh, my first pick is there's a video from the International Space Station of uh, an astronaut wringing out a rag, a soaking wet rag of water. Oh, I saw that was awesome. It, it was really, really cool. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Uh, just, well, it was awesome. So anyway, I really, really liked that. And the other pick I have is something that we've talked about. We actually had an episode on it, but um, I'm really... I, I picked up a contract that wasn't Ruby. It's JavaScript. And uh, we've been using RequireJS and AMD as part of the project. And I have to say that there's some pretty awesome stuff in there. So it's it's one thing to talk about it, but it's another thing to actually use it. And so It's wonderful. Yeah, it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm Word. Sti- I'm still getting used to some of the patterns for use that, that it has, but... Uh, yeah, it's in some of the areas, it just makes things a whole lot simpler. So, Anyway, Zach, what are your picks? So I've got a couple. Uh, tech pick. Uh, first of all, I'm going to pick my own podcast, Mostly Erlang. We mentioned it earlier, but uh, people would go and subscribe. It would be very much appreciative. It's um, just getting off the ground. We've got one episode recorded so far, and hopefully a second by the time this comes out. As I may have mentioned earlier, I'm originally, I live in Israel, but I'm originally from Boston. So I just want to pick, as sort of an honor, the... All the first responders in the greater Boston area from the last couple of weeks work. You know, it's, it was kind of a frightening time for all of us Bostonians, even those of us who are far away. So it's nice to know that we get good people. And the third thing is a piece of Israeli tech that I'm really impressed by. Uh, it's called the Iron, and the Iron Dome. So it's an anti-missile system that basically is designed to take out short-range rockets. And it can basically spot a rocket launch and within about the 15 seconds of flight that the rocket would have before it hits, determine whether or not it would hit uh, populated civilian areas, and if so, fire an interceptor and take it out with about 90% uh, reliability. So it's uh, during our last round of, of uh, conflict, it reduced casualties all around. Uh, uh, I, don't, I don't care which side of the conflict you're on. That is cool technology. <laughs> it really awesome. is. I'll, I'll send you a video. This is from... Um, here, let me just send you a, a link. It's purely defensive tech. It, yeah. All it can do down is, other, is, is incoming rockets. I sent a video. It's um, from a wedding that was in Beersheba, which is in the south of Israel. And, um, you know, this is the Rathus wedding, and the air raid sirens are going off. Everybody runs for cover. Because uh, when the air raid sirens are going off, you run for cover. Because you have about, depending on where you are, between, 30, between 15 and 90 seconds to run for cover. And you just see these rockets come out and there, and then the all clear sounds. Uh, it was, you know, truly astounding. Uh, thankfully, where I live is far enough out into the into the boonies outside Tel Aviv that we didn't. I didn't actually hear the only air raid siren I heard was a drill from the school around next to my house. But it was a fairly scary time, I tell you. Uh, but yeah, it's truly amazing technology. They they. They did a huge job of it, and I just have to thank all the people involved in both Israel and the United States because uh, the U.S. government paid for a large chunk of it. So, yeah, better living through technology. Cool. Sweet. All right. Oh. Well, that's the show. Um, thanks for coming, Zach. It was a oh, really interesting conversation. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. I mean, I've, I've, like I said, I've been a fan of the show for a while. So. All right. Yeah, thank you, man.